Think of the sermon is like a house and the illustrations are windows to the house that are intended to give light and bring in light from the outside. But like most of you understand, it's not wise to have a house that is made of entirely out of glass. It's a terrible idea. And in the same way, illustrations are good, but too many can really lose focus from what the text is trying to give. Hi, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 215. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the voice that you just heard is this week's guest, uh, which is John Geraci. John speaks to us about turning the results of our personal study into memorable public proclamation. Uh, Basically, how do we take our notes and our insights uh, from the text and from the Lord and from our observations, and how do we present them in a way that is easy for our congregations to hear? Uh, John gives practical advice on both how to plan out our sermons and then also how to plan out our weeks. So I hope that you enjoy and benefit from John Geraci speaking to us about framing our messages and managing our weeks. No, but you know, when you think about outlining a sermon, it's not usually the first thing that pops up in your mind, but to Pete's point, it really is helping pave the entire sermon itself. And so what we're going to do is talk about, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually be fairly short t- tonight, but we're going to talk about the value of outlines, creating an outline, and then the process of building that outline in sermon, which is something that I particularly am excited about. And, and so it raises the first question, so really what is the, the benefit of creating and the value of creating an outline? And before I answer that, I thought it would be fun to begin with reading to you an actual letter that was written to an England newspaper back in the day. And a man wrote this, and it begins as this. Sir, he starts off with, I noticed that ministers set a great deal of importance on sermons and how they spend a great deal of time in preparing them. Well, I've been attending services regularly for the past 30 years, and if I estimate correctly, I've listened to about 3,000 sermons. But I discovered that I can't remember a single one of them. And so I wonder if a minister's time may be spent more profitably on something else. And then he ended the letter, sincerely, the individual. Well, this letter made it to the newspaper, and it created quite a scuffle in the community, primarily within church-going members. And so in writing to the newspaper, all these different letters, there was this one letter that was a response to the man's original letter that silenced the question. This is what he wrote in response to the original letter. My dear sir, I've been married for 30 years. And during that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals. They mostly were from my wife's cooking. But suddenly, I've discovered I can't remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I've received nourishment from every single one of those meals. I have the distinct impression that, in fact, if I didn't have any of those meals, I would have starved to death long ago. Sincerely, the man who said it in response to him. And it made me think about 
the prospect of outlining sermons, if you were to ask me five of my sermons that I've given an outline to, I can tell you I, I can't even remember it, which is not the greatest thing as the pastor of a church who's trying to tell other Bible teachers what it comes to this kind of stuff. But when you think about the context of why we're doing what we're doing, it's really about the nourishment and what we're presenting to the people. God's word in the same way is intended to give nourishment and life. And, I, and again, I have accepted that most people don't even remember the sermon that I've given. They might remember pieces here and there, and I'm, and I'm okay with that, but that doesn't, but that, and here's the point, that doesn't excuse the process it takes to create, write, and in fact, prepare a sermon. Because if it is in fact true that we can all agree that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it is in fact profitable for doctrine, for reproof and correction and righteousness, then our goal as Bible teachers is that we want to outline our thoughts that complement this thing called the inspired word of God and not make it inconsistent with what we're saying. And in order to do this, we have to have a process of how we want to communicate the text in a way that's not just jumbled thoughts and random things and confusing to the listeners. In fact, my father, who is a Bible teacher, and I'm so thankful for my father because I learned much from him over the many years, but my dad has always said something, and he says it to every pastor, and it's stuck with me. He said that we should never preach what the text never intended us to to preach. Meaning as Bible teachers, it's essential to teach the Bible and or the text in its context and not alter it or mold it in a way to support a point we're trying to make that really has no validity to what the Bible is trying to communicate. And so when we're outlining a passage of scripture, that's what we're doing. We're trying to communicate what the Bible teaches and then compel people to respond to whatever it is that we're communicating. And so the value of creating outlines is that we're commissioned with something so valuable, God's eternal word, that people can respond to. So now, what I want to talk about is creating that sermon outline. Just like most of you already know, you create that introduction. And by the way, I've heard a lot of Bible teachers say this, and here's the point that you're going to learn from tonight, that the process is really different from each person. And so what I'm giving you is just kind of a layout, but this is not the be-all, end-all. So some people will say when you create your introduction when teaching the Bible, it needs to be this electrifying, attention-grabbing, heart-squeezing thing so you don't lose the attention of the people that you're presenting the text to. But I don't think that's always true. Because again, better to be spirit-led in your introduction than to be clever in your introduction. And not to mention, we have to remember it's God's word that is inspired, not your introduction but that doesn't excuse the fact that we are called to be stewards of God's word and present it in a way prepared. Some of you are going to learn the value of a 2.5.10 point sermon, and some of you might have subtexts to those points. For me personally, I love giving themes to the text that I'm reading. And what's great about this weekend is we're learning about Christ-centeredness and everything we're doing, and in which case we're going to find a lot of that. So when presenting the text, you have these main points and sub points that come across it. But the point is that the process is different from, for everyone. And for me personally, it's presenting the main point of the text and what it's trying to accomplish. In fact, I, I want to give a little, because a lot of you have specific questions. I'm going to tell you, when I write my sermon, I tend to write the conclusion first. And the reason why I personally do that is, is because it's helping support whatever my introduction is. 
and what the conclusion is so that the rest of the sermon flows and is consistent. And it just helps me to understand really what it is, what I want to teach about the text. And for some of you, while you're giving that two to point four point outline, what you want to think about your sermon is like a skeleton or like the frame to a house. We bought the facility that we're in right now in Littleton, Colorado, and it's like 40,000 square feet. But when we first bought this building, it was one giant room. And it was very overwhelming, and it was very hard to imagine what the church looked like because it was literally one giant room with no walls. And sometimes when you're preparing a sermon, it's hard to imagine what it is you're trying to say and what you want to communicate. And like the building that we first got and when we purchased it, we hired an engineer who gave us the blueprints to help understand what that layout of this building is going to look like, even before it started to the building construction process. So while you're creating your main points, you insert the sub points, you incorporate illustrations and cross references. And then when you're done creating your outline, you begin to be able to build your sermon. And so what I want to do is kind of explain to you the process of how I build my sermon. And again, this is not the be all end all. Every person is different. But when I, and this is especially true for some of you who are both vocational and bivocational. And I just want to have a little empathy card for those of you who have to work and do ministry apart from being paid by the church. When I church planted, I had to work at Starbucks and the Apple store while I was in Charleston, South Carolina working. And I would have to, on my breaks, prepare my sermon because it was so important to me that I wasn't neglecting my family at home. Because when I started a church, I was 26 years old at the time. And then when I did, I told my wife, I was like, okay, we have a four-year-old or a two-year-old and a newborn. Let's go start a church. I had to be home and attentive. But for me, I, I had to create a process. But my process now when I prepare a sermon is that I create on Monday I look at the text, and I know what I'm about to read, and I read over the text. And you're going to find this very different for Nick and then a lot of the guys in here, but the point that I'm trying to make right now is when I'm teaching the text, I look at it on Monday, and before I look at any commentaries or steal notes from David Gusick at EnduringTheWord.com, by the way, if you Google search sermons to steal, David Gusick's name pops up. Just kidding. That's obviously not a true statement. But, you know, honestly, and this is important for you guys, our goal as Bible teachers is to read the text repeatedly before we open any commentary and ask the Lord to give us all the things we're learning this, this week. As we observe and as we interpret what we're seeing and we find the application, we want to, Lord, speak to my heart as I'm, because that's going to help outline all the main points and the big ideas that you're making. So then Tuesday, after I've made that outline, before I read any commentaries, Wednesday, I write everything. Now, this, some Bible teachers are going to disagree with what I'm about to say. But when I'm creating my sermon, I write everything I'm thinking. Because I have found in the past when I'm dealing with a difficult doctrinal piece of information in the Bible, I will sometimes spend four to six hours on one particular piece only to go back to it and say, I hate everything that I just wrote. And so what I do is I write everything I am thinking so that on Thursday I've given it time to breathe that Friday morning comes, I reread everything I wrote. And a lot of times I read, and I'll take out probably 40% of my notes, realizing this was not good, but it's helping me think better on how to uh, create it. And especially this is true when it comes to illustrations. In fact, I'm going to tell you something when it comes to illustrations, the best example I've ever heard someone give. 
Skip Heitzig once said that illustrations are like, think of, it, think of the sermon is like a house. And the illustrations are windows to the house that are intended to give light and bring in light from the outside. But like most of you understand, it's not wise to have a house that is made of entirely out of glass. As cool as some of you, but that'd be really cool. That sounds like a TLC show that would be really successful. It's a terrible idea. And in the same way, illustrations are good, but too many can really help, they can really lose focus from what the text is trying to give. So once Thursdays come, like I've said, I've, I've let it breathe and Friday comes and I'm going over my notes. Saturday night, I will spend one last time going over my notes, making any last minute changes, which in a lot of cases, mine changes often because I, John, how do we talk about things that are topical in light of what's happening right now, spirit led and all of those things come in time in proper preparation pulpit time, or just even presenting, it's not even pulpit time, it's presenting the word in front of a group of people. Because I want to preface this one thing. Each of you desire an amazing thing, and that's teaching God's word. And some of you are in a a time of your life where you're single. Some of you do have a family. And I just need to preface this before we move on. Do not neglect the responsibilities God has given you with your family, your children, your wife, even though you may want to be this amazing Bible teacher that's going to change the world overnight. I don't want to, man, how sad it is to see a lot of people and their families fall apart because they put their church first or the Bible study first before their family. And so, hey, come up with the greatest outline, present it in a way that it's going to honor God, but man, don't ever forget who your first responsibility is and what God has entrusted to you. So, The goal as a Bible teacher, as we outline our thoughts, is that, again, we want to complement the inspired word of God. We want to compel people to respond to it in a way that it makes sense. And in order to do that, you want to have that process. You want to have your skeleton and frame before you. You want to be able to communicate the text in its context while finding application and illustrations that people come in. Because, by the way, illustrations are biblical. Jesus gave them. Writers throughout the Bible give illustrations to help the the listeners understand the point that they're making. And as we look deeper into this, and as many of you are going to prepare your own sermon, you're going to find yourself writing certain things down, and maybe the Holy Spirit's going to change what you think is so clever, and the Holy Spirit's going to show you, but write it in such a way like this. It's good to have your your notes and your outline open in a way that's going to complement that greater point that the Holy Spirit has editing rights. Otherwise, we're just trying to be clever instead of spirit-led. And although creating your outline can be frustrating, guys, don't be discouraged. Remember, it's God's word that is inspired, not our outline. And again, this mentality of that which the spirit began, we don't want to complete and or make better in the flesh. We want to be spirit-led in everything we do. And God's word is, 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 is that. It's nourishing. Our job is to feed people that meaty word of God, and your outline is going to help support that. Finally, everyone's process is different, but don't forget, as you have a beginning, middle, and an end to every sermon, our goal is to point them back to Jesus who is both in the Old and the New Testament. So the big idea, the main point, the sub points, the intro, the conclusion, all of those things are going to complement 
the greater point that we serve an amazing God, Jesus Christ himself, who wants to make himself known to every person we present the word to. All right. Amen? You guys awake? Okay. That's it. That's all I got to say. Okay. Thank you, John. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, appreciate the practical wisdom uh, as to how to manage our sermon presentations and then also how to manage our weeks and prioritize those things that are that are important. So what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to give a preview for next week's episode. I, I hope that you are subscribed so that this automatically comes to you, whether it's uh, YouTube, whether it's Spotify, whether it's um, Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. I hope that we're one of the podcasts that you subscribe to so that next Tuesday, my interview with Jared Kennedy comes automatically to your device. Uh, Jared is an editor for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, He's the author of Keeping Your Children's Ministry on Mission, Practical Strategies for Discipling the Next Generation. I had a really encouraging and educational uh, conversation with him about how we can and should and might be training and equipping uh, the next generation to be Christ-centered Jesus followers. So here is a section of next week's episode where Jared speaks to those of us who teach adults about what we can and should be learning from those who teach children. All right, here's Jared Kennedy. One thing I think that's great about children's ministry um, is that in order to teach well, you've got to be present with people. And I think that's one thing that's absolutely essential in a, in a children's ministry area. In order to teach kids well, you've got to know the kids in your class. You've got to know their particular needs. You've got to know uh, when Johnny is going to hop up and need to go to the bathroom during during class time and be able to sort of shape your teaching around that. And I, I think teaching adults um, in some ways is really different. Like, you know, you're not, you're not going to stop for bathroom breaks in the, in the middle of the sermon. Um, but knowing the needs of the people to whom you're speaking is super essential. And I think the more, the better, you know, your congregation, the more you smell like sheep, the better a shepherd you'll be. And so um, I think that's absolutely essential. Jesus says, humble yourself and become like a child, humble yourself and welcome children. Um, And the disciples forgot that so quick, you know, in the very next chapter, that was Matthew 18 and Matthew 19, they're turning kids away. And he says, let them come. I think in the same way, uh, pastors sometimes can feel distant from their congregations uh, and even do the kinds of things that make themselves uh, put themselves at a distance from their congregation. But a better Bible teacher is going to be one who's with people. Um, I think a second thing is in children's ministry, our curriculum and the way we teach is really shaped oftentimes by the kinds of learning styles kids have and, and the kinds of questions they're asking when they come into the classroom. And so you may have one kid um, that's just a, a really dreamy kid that is, is kind of asking the big why question, like, why is this even important? Why do I need to learn this? 
there may be another question that's the another kid that's the really studious kid and they're they're asking the question like what do i need to know i want to know all the right answers give me all the like correct things um you've got the other kid that really loves like uh, just to work with his hands and play with the blocks and and do the crafts and we do crafts and we play with blocks because that kid is dialed in to really practical application of the lesson in his immediate play. Um, and then I think there, there are the kids that are the artsy kids that are want to create and, and act out stories and, and drama and, and, and we want to inspire them and empower them and encourage them in that. And I think the best preaching honestly does the same thing. It answers the same kinds of questions. And, you know, you think of a preacher like Tim Keller, who is always going to answer the why question, who he's yeah. going to tell you why, why this is important. And he's going to trace uh, that text that he's preaching that day back to the big picture of maybe what's going on in the culture, what's going on in, in philosophy, or the big picture of what's going on in the Bible. And he's going to tell you why this is important. Or they might trace, um, you know, some people are coming to church and they're asking the what question. Tell me what it says. And you've got other pastors like a, a John Piper who are is just like breaking down the text word mm -hmm. by word. And and I, I think I heard Piper one time say, and chewing on it like a dog chews on a bone, you know, like like really working mm -hmm. through bit by bit. Um, and then you've got, you know, the Bill Bright kind of teachers that are like here practically is like how you practically apply this, knowing that there are going to be folks who come into the church. You just have a bent toward, uh, they love the book of Proverbs and, um, they're the, the person that like, it's just bent toward practical application. Um, and then others who come that day and they just need inspiration. Like, um, sure. and I think of Francis Chan or a David Platt who, who can, can really inspire someone to go out and and change the world. And I think I think we know those different preachers that I named because they have unique emphases and unique styles, but I think we also know them because they're not afraid to I think sometimes when we teach the Bible, we can make the mistake of teaching just to what we need or what we think we need as the preacher. Um, and I, th I think those guys are comfortable in their unique style, but I think they're also known um, because they're good at recognizing when people come into the congregation, often they're bringing different questions as well. And so they're able to, Keller sometimes, uh, even though you always know he's going to answer that why question, very often he'll sound like Bill Bright and and just give a practical, here's how you share the gospel with, with someone else, mm. because he knows um, yeah. that the people in his congregation need all of those things. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're saying it's more than saying what we think we'd like to hear, but it's, it's thinking about what kind of people are in the room and how can I present this in ways that connects with their personality styles or learning needs or experiences. Yeah, that's right. Their learning styles and the questions they're asking and bringing uh, and and bringing into the classroom. And I think intuitively, um, because children's ministry lessons and curriculum 
are written intentionally both to be accurate reflections of the text. Um, we shouldn't be leaving the Bible behind as we teach, but they're also written in such a way as to uh, reflect the particular developmental stage that kids are at and the particular learning styles they're bringing into the classroom. And I think that's something that is helpful for preachers to think about as well.